Herdadores. A dedicated dad and long-distance parent, I'm raising two boys in two countries, and in each episode, I invite another dad to join me in a podcast adventure to talk about our journey as parents. We will discuss the messiness of modern dadding and the challenges of long-distance parenting. At the end of each episode, I will be checking in with psychologist and fellow dad Todd Kettner as he shares his insights into parenthood. My name is Blue, and I am a Dad Without Borders. Hello and welcome back to Dad Without Borders and this week is Truth and Reconciliation Day on September 30th which is this Thursday here in Canada and for those that may not know this is a day which is set aside now it's actually a statutory uh, federal holiday and it's the idea of this is for the public to have a chance to recognize and commemorate the intergenerational harm that residential schools here in Canada have caused to the indigenous families and communities. And it's an opportunity to honor those that have been affected by this injustice. It's also known as Orange Shirt Day. Now today, it just so happens, and this wasn't actually planned, um, but I have Jerry on the show. And Jerry is an indigenous um, father and grandfather. He's a retired fire chief from the local town and he's very involved in the local community um, as an elder and so it's very timely that he should be the dad that's on the show today so it's a really great story that he has to share i say a great story as in it's a fascinating story a very interesting background that he's had uh, growing up and then being a father he's now a granddad as well so reflecting back on his parenting um, and some of the lessons that he's learned really good to yeah to check in and to be mindful listening to him of you know some of the intergenerational trauma that his community has been exposed to uh, so yeah really pleased that he's been on the show and that he was willing to give his time so please enjoy um, and a reminder for anyone that wants to support the podcast uh it is independently run. I don't get any money for this. It's just my time and energy that I put into it. Um, so it really helps support me by sharing, uh, offering a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, give it a rating, um, and then following on Facebook or Instagram. That's kind of, I have a Twitter account, but I don't really do anything with that. Um, but yeah, Facebook and Instagram are good places to go. And yeah, please do share and like and follow and, you know, sh tell your community, tell dads that, you know, if you think this may be of value to them. And I'm always looking for new dads on the show as well. So please feel free to reach out dadwithoutborders.com. And I should say, too, I have another great check in with Todd Kettner at the end talking about trauma. So, yeah, please enjoy Jerry. Uh, really lovely sitting back and listening to his experiences and I hope you enjoy it also. Hey, Jerry. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. 
Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm excited to chat to you. And uh, you're a man that I don't doubt has a lot of wisdom to share in uh, parenting. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> Tried my best and I will try my best, I guess. <laughs> so let me set this up. You're, um, so the background, let's see if I get this right. So you are a granddaddy to a boy and a girl. Uh, you are a father of four. So one son, three daughters. Uh, you have you come from a big family, so you you have eight siblings, and um, you're based in the Kootenays. So just for listeners, we have listeners from other parts of the world. So you're ba we're based in the Kootenays region of Western Canada, which is in British Columbia, and right. you're the retired fire chief of Castlegar. Is that right, Castlegar? That's right. Yes, yeah. and also one of the founders and active elders of the Circle of Indigenous Nations Society, where my wife works, and that's the connection that we have there, um, which right. has been going about seven years, is that right? That's right, seven years we've been, we've been going, yes. Yeah, um, so that's a fantastic service for the community. And then also now, you are the chaplain for the fire service, so you help out when there's critical incident support needed. Um, that's right. And right, recently yeah. there was a forest fire in Castlegar. We've just had a forest fire that you were involved in, I think. Yes, we did uh, with the evacuations of some sections of the city. And uh, yeah, it was pretty uh, tense for folks there for a while, for sure. Yeah. I, saw the, I saw the images and yeah, it was right, right on the edge of town there. Pretty it was, it actually did encroach. Yeah, it encroached into the city a bit, but they were able to hold that. So. Wow. So that's all I'll good. We can, we can breathe easy and do the podcast because we don't have to worry about the fire raging right now. That's right. Yeah. Okay. It's out. <laughs> um, and in terms of what, what's your heritage in terms of your Aboriginal heritage, your ancestry? My ancestry is uh, German Mennonite, um, Plains Cree. And also I have uh, West African ancestry as well. Wow. And that was from, that's from Canada, all from Canada. I mean, in terms uh, of, uh, from, is it Manitoba, North Dakota? That my Aboriginal ancestry, yes, Manitoba, North Dakota. Um, of course, the African ancestry is from centuries ago and, and has been diluted considerably um, from my Mennonite ancestors in Prussia, who I didn't know were involved with that part of, uh, with the African slave trade, um, but I guess they were, and I think I don't like very much. So, yeah, that's where that came from. And then, of course, the Plains Cree are from Canada, the, the Manitoba, North Dakota yeah. area. And um, so just going back to your childhood, um, so you relocated as a young child from Renata, which was a community that was flooded by a dam close to sort of on the outskirts of Castlegar. Could, I'm wondering, can you remember that time? Like as a child, how old were you when that happened? I, I do remember it actually quite clearly. I was 10 years old when we moved out actually. And um, yeah, it was a strange time even for us as children. Um, you know, we had a small schoolhouse in Renata. It was grade one to seven. Uh, there were 11 children in the school. So it was one classroom. We just had the different rows for each grade. So in my grade, there was a couple other children in it. 
but I remember the last summer, the last school year we were there and they were destroying the buildings where people had already moved out because they had to clear the land prior to the flooding. And uh, I remember very clearly we had school walks where we would go watch the houses burn um, to get rid of them. And that, and that was really, it was a weird feeling. And it was very difficult on the, uh, you know, the older folks who had built that, built their farms and had settled there. It, it was very difficult for them. Um, you know, my great grandparents moved into that community in 1911. So that, that German part in the family, uh, they'd been there a long time. And then just to watch everything get destroyed and, you know, the buildings burnt, the orchards cut down and, you know, things plowed up with bulldozers. Yeah, it was a weird, a weird feeling. Yeah, that sounds like a really traumatic event to go through at that age. It is when I look back at it, actually. Yeah, yeah. But I guess with the time, you're probably just... As a 10-year-old, I would imagine just reacting to what's right in front of you. And so did you move as a community en masse to another part of the area? Or did you did the the whole community get dispersed into you know the surrounding? Yeah, people moved everywhere actually. Um dad worked for the school district at that time. So we moved to Castlegar and he remained with his job. But people moved, a lot of them moved down to the coast, uh, to the Vancouver lower mainland area. Some moved north, some to Alberta. So, yeah, it was, they were dispersed around Western Canada, you know, in the, you know, the province for sure. And BC uh, and Alberta all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine yeah. that would be really unsettling as a, as a child, depending on the kids. I would imagine a lot, everybody deals with something like that differently. But um, yeah, for us to move into town was a bit of culture shock because we, we certainly weren't used to, we had no electricity in Renata. So for us, electricity is a weird thing. Um, toilets inside the house, for example, we couldn't, couldn't believe people actually did that because ours was an outhouse you know, 100 feet away. <laughs> we didn't, never had hot water. So, you know, all the time it had to be heated up in the woods so things like that you know my, my mom I remember really appreciated that stuff because she worked very hard raising nine kids you know with a, in a wood stove and heating water for laundry and baths so yeah that time we only had a bath once a week oh yeah <laughs> so it was yeah because you had yeah, to heat yeah. the water <laughs> I can imagine you actually being raised in that way. And it just, I'm thinking of somebody else um, that I know that was raised in a Mennonite community and mm -hmm. really strong work ethic from a young age was just learned to be involved in the growing of the food and the harvesting and, you know, all the house chores that you're talking about. Was that how you were raised? Were you raised very much kind of hands on? Yes, we were. Um, we had to help with everything. We did. Have, we had a fruit orchard, a cherry orchard, so we were expected to pick those cherries. Um, you know, we never got paid for it. It was it had to be done. We had to carry in wood every day, keep the wood box filled. Um, any chores that were done, we were expected to be and do our part of of it. Yeah, you know that cutting the firewood, everything. We we had to be a part of it and and learn that. Yeah, I would imagine that's 
so that's probably stayed with you into your working life as well, I imagine, and was actually set you up quite well in that sense. Well, it did when you think about it. Yeah. And, you know, and that was, uh, my dad always stressed, you know, you don't be lazy. The term was keep your traces tight. Um, the traces are part of a harness that the horse pulls with. The traces are tight, you're pulling hard. And it's, that's where that expression came from. You know, don't be lazy, keep your traces tight. And yeah, that, that sticks with you. Yeah, no doubt. So did you, do you find yourself when you were a dad, uh, well, you are still a dad, of course, but raising your kids when they were younger, did you instill that sense of that work ethic with them, with chores around the house? Or did things get more and more comfortable as you, like you say, you moved into an area where the toilet was suddenly inside the house, which actually sounds yeah. really dirty, doesn't it? If you think about it. <laughs> yeah, it does. That's <laughs> it was freaky. But yeah. <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> But yeah, did you did you instill that in your kids? I mean, one boy and three girls. I don't know whether you would treat them differently in that sense. Well, and excuse me, somewhat differently and, and similar at the same time, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, our children are all very hardworking, um, you know, and they, that is something that they've all, I can see they all work very hard and, um, and, and are doing well, too, which, yeah, I guess it, it was certainly in, instilled in them to be, to be that way. And So did you have a chore list on the fridge kind of thing and you had you had it all kind of laid out in that way? Or was it just, you know, sometimes it would be like, you know, pick yourself up. We've got some jobs to do. Get on with it. Or did you was there any kind of like structure to it? Uh, not a structure, but it was kind of. They kind of just did it, um, you know, through the years. It just, you know, kids are kids too. There's not to say there wasn't messy bedrooms and things, but but yeah, they did clean it up on their own. Like sometimes you'd have to uh, ride them a bit, but by and large, it, most of it was 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 their own work. Yeah, realization that it had to be done. Yeah, is there a trick to that? Because with four kids, that's a busy household. That's, well, a lot of, that's a lot of mess, potentially. It is. Yeah, it is. And it's funny, like all, all four kids had different personalities too, hey? Um, I, I don't know what the trick is looking back, I guess, just just to keep instilling in them how, how important it is. To, because everything you learn as a child, you carry through life not easy actually is it no. really being a parent no it's not it's, it's not you kind of raise them how you feel is right and you know we're all kind of stumbling our way through life yeah for sure well i would imagine you know something that comes up in conversations is um or has been is the fact that the kids will often mirror what they see and I imagine that you would be setting a good example as someone who was raised the way that you were raised, that you would then be setting that example because you have a, you know, a sense of, you know, that work ethic and just kind of probably, I don't doubt keeping the house in order. I mean, you're a fire chief, so that I would imagine as well, there's some a sense of organization that comes with that, that you probably, yeah, on a day to day run the house in a certain way. Well, you do. And that kind of, um, that, that, 
that's kind of uh, it, it's a, a positive and a negative because I was very um, and, and this is one thing too that children comment on that I was I'd always harp on safety issues and you know wear your helmet on your bike and things like that to the point that it would be yeah that's me to the point that it'd be irritating to them and yeah we know we know and 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 of course with what I saw in my job I would transfer to them like you know be careful this could happen you know and that sort of thing and it, I, I can see looking back it was you know sure it I, I think it instilled safety and and those sorts of things in their minds but it was also at the time I think a little irritating to them yeah. because I would, I would relate what I saw on my job uh, to their safety. And, and it does, as you know, you worry about your own kids and things happening. And even today they go drive away. I say, well, the elk, you know, <laughs> you know, stuff like that, where you, where you transfer, yeah. transfer like things. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's a lot of trust, I think, with being a parent sometimes, letting them go. Like you say, if they're once they're out of sight, sometimes you just have to have that trust that you've taught them how to make good choices. Well, you do. You do. I think you can, you know, teach them the core values and stuff. And and it is up to, them to a degree, I mean, with your guidance and stuff. But, but yeah, you have to have a lot of trust. And sometimes you find out years later. <laughs> but what the, what they did which is pretty funny too and i you know i hear stories now from my girl children hey i was there i was watching you putting that fire out well i didn't know that at the time you know yeah. so it's, it's funny too but uh, but yeah there's a lot of trust involved and yeah so and, and yeah and you have to that's part of them growing up too you really do you have to let go don't you to a certain extent yeah um so with the Mennonite background and that work ethic and those kind of things, uh, it brings me to another question, which is you were raised during, uh, you know, as an indigenous man too, you were raised by an indigenous father and raised in the 1960s, which has become known now this term, the 60s scoop, which I think went beyond the six, 1960s. But for listeners unfamiliar with what that might be, could you just explain briefly what that was? Yeah, I can. Through the 60s and uh, actually right up into the 1980s, um, a lot of Indigenous children were taken from families and they were adopted out or fostered out uh, to other families and mostly to non-Indigenous families. Um, you know, under the reasoning for their protection. And it was, they were put in other schools and other environments and, and it caused a lot of problems. And while well, people lost their whole identities um, through that, uh, through adoption, there are people finding out now, you know, uh, senior citizens that were, they were adopted, didn't know it. You know, there's issues like that. And growing up in that period, um, that's one of the things my dad, I, I didn't understand it at the time, but we weren't allowed much to speak about that ancestry. In fact, my dad would get upset if it was ever brought up because in his words, no, we're not them. We're not one of them. Um, and we were. Uh, but one of my uncles told me 
a bit ago, and I didn't understand it as a child, but one of his fears was because of the 60 scoop and because of the residential schools, and he knew about them. And, you know, as my uncle said, he didn't want that word out, out in the world either to have the possibility of us being removed or, or, or taken somewhere else. I, I had no idea. I just knew we weren't allowed to talk about it. And, uh, did you, you know, know, and he was, did you know children, or, other families in your immediate area that were exper that experienced that? The 60s scoop or, um, not, not in Renata. I don't, I don't, but I do know, um, I knew a fair number of people now who were right at a later stage. So as a yeah. kid, you didn't, you didn't see kids being taken away or anything like that in front of no, you. No, no. And people in that small community of Renata, like there were about a hundred people that lived there. Um, everything was very, I guess you'd call it tight lipped. I mean, there were other children who were adopted there that we didn't know, no idea. Um, nobody talked about that stuff. Um, so it was a culture also of the community uh, as well. And, um, so we were pretty isolated that way and protected, um, from the rest of the world that way. But I mean, all, the, the parents certainly knew what was going on. Wow. So for the, in the 60s scoop, um, was i mean how do they choose the found i mean are they going to reservations like or are they because you weren't living in a reservation but still no. it was a threat to you it, it was I, I the majority of the children as my research uh, anyway is that the majority of them did come from the reserves um and that way but not all um uh but it was certainly perceived that it was any indigenous children and and i i imagine it was as well of you know others not living in the reserve if the government felt things weren't good or stable for the child i, I don't know like right they they had different reasoning that uh, yeah. you know most of it i wouldn't agree with certainly but um but yeah but even ah. in our family like the, the ripple effects of that don't talk about who you are. Yeah. And don't, don't, so let you it didn't, out. you didn't grow up with your identity growing up was more as a Mennonite as opposed to, you know, as a Métis. Well, it, it was interesting in that it was kind of both. Like we, uh, mom was raised a very strong Mennonite. Uh, her, like my grandparents were Mennonite to the core. Yeah. My dad wasn't, even though Rempel is a German Mennonite name. My, my grandparents on his side of the family left the Mennonite church in the 1880s. So it, it was another uh, Protestant denomination. So we, I grew up with a lot of Mennonite influence, but also dad, a lot of indigenous influence, like the hunting, the trapping, the, you know, uh, tanning hides and, and we ate fry bread every day, but also sauerkraut and, 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 and Mennonite sausage, which I love. And, you know, and, and wild meat. I mean, we lived on wild meat year round. I don't remember eating beef until we moved to town. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> we, yeah. So it was a real, it was an interesting combination of. For cultures. sure. But at the same yeah. time, 
being raised that way it sounds like your dad do you think it was the fear of losing you or did he some did he have some shame around his indigenous roots because of the, you know the culture around with the 60s scoop and such he did actually as well and um it was about well he, he was 60 years old when he finally said this is crazy you know we are who we are and you can't change that and, and by the time that period came along he um, it was more acceptable to have Native or Aboriginal blood. Um, but he said, too, like he volunteered for service during the Second War. And he, what really, what he felt odd was he was treated better as a German name, like Rempel was German. He, he was treated better that way than as a half-breed, as, as we were termed in those days. Métis wasn't used much then, so... He, he thought it was odd, yeah, that he was treated better as a German wow. than a half-breed. Because we were at war with Germany for, you know, yeah. he said, for heaven's sakes. And, uh, but he, he came from Manitoba to Renata later in the 1930s. He came to Renata. So. Sorry, when did he come out? The 1930s? Yeah, 1939, he moved to Renata. He was, right. he was born in a Métis community of Boggy Creek in Manitoba. And... Uh, so while he was there, everybody was the same. You know, they were all Métis, majority of them. And, uh, and it wasn't until he came out West. And then, of course, when he was in the army that he faced the racism. And, and then he, I, I, I can, when I look back, I see that it, he was, there was a, a certain amount of shame there. Yeah, for sure there was. Right. So, that, so he's that, experienced that in the war, being treated better as a, with a German name as a, being a half-breed and now later he's becoming a dad and at this point he's just carrying that shame that he has maybe in the racism and that probably doesn't want you to have to deal with that as well right no and he said that he didn't want us kids going through what he did and uh, but there again with that shame there was you know a lot of ripple effects the anger you know you like he was a good dad in a, in, in a lot of ways, but he had a very short fuse and we, there was a line boy. Oh, we yeah. knew when we crossed it. Yeah. And, uh, and there was, you know, a certain amount of, of, uh, alcohol is there too. Um, as well as, you know, some of my siblings also, uh, a lot of ripple effects from that sort of, yeah, I can't even imagine bit of fighting in a war with a German name against the Germans and you're being treated, you know, better that way than you are being, you know, you're, this is your, you know, your ancestry is matey, you're from the land, you're sort of fighting for the land in a way, in that sense in the war, but then being kind of made to feel shameful from where you, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. Mm -hmm. um, so when he moved to Renata, did he maintain connection with the community, with the Métis community that he had come from? And through that, did you maintain connection with that community that he came from? Well, for a while, like my grandpa, he came out here when my grandpa passed away. Uh, my dad was 17 years old. Uh, dad, my grandpa died. And that's so my other great, my other great men, uh, grandparents also moved to Renata. So he, that's how he wound up there on uh, great grandparents on his, his mother's side. So he maintained some contact with uh, folks in Boggy Creek. And then that disappeared until about the mid 1970s. Um, but he did keep up the, 
the uh, I guess the traditions. I mean, he he was a trapper for years, um, and that was our income trapping, and which you know he had to deal with the hides, and he would ship them off to the Hudson's Bay Company, and a month or two later get a check. You know, the it was not a very stable income. Uh, finally, in the last few years, there he he was hired as a school bus driver, and that was his first full time job. Um, but he did keep up those traditional ways uh, for years. And, and then in the mid-70s, I actually went to Boggy Creek and saw some old friends of his. And uh, so that, that was kind of neat. So he kind of maintained contact, but not really for a period of time. Did it help you but, connect with your roots and have a better understanding of your Métis ancestry when you went to Boggy Creek? Yeah, it did actually. It, it did. And um, although when I came back, I didn't say much to dad about that because he was still in that, <laughs> you know, in that uh, don't talk about a thing, but I was an adult already, you yeah. know. And, um, but it's been more this last, I don't know, 20 years, I guess, that I've been reconnecting and, and, and learning the traditional stuff. And researching our own family. Right. It's Which interesting. is interesting. Yeah, from what you've told, yeah, with the West African and the Cree, and there's a real mix, mix there, is. isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. so with so recent well, recently, a couple months ago or so, I um, had a conversation with Jacob, um, which is one one of the earlier episodes in the podcast. And what he was it was interesting talking to him because um he, when he was younger, he wasn't raised with that connection, much the same way as you, but yet he, you know, as he would say, he kind of, he looked native. So therefore he was treated differently and he was, you know, he experienced bullying, racism. Um, and so he ended up, you know, by default almost going, you know, to learn, I mean, down the road, he's, you know, really embraced that heritage, but there was a while there at school. It was very difficult for him. Did you have that, any of that experience as well growing up? You know, and, yeah, and it's interesting uh, with all of us nine children, there's a real variety of appearance. My older siblings look more, uh, more Aboriginal than I do. Um, I mean, I, I could pass for white. Uh, you know, I'm all gray haired and everything now, but, <laughs> but yeah, and my, my second oldest sister actually looked some native and she took a lot of uh, ribbing and, and bullying as a teen. And, and uh, you know, especially when she started going to school in town um, and that stuck with her, you know, throughout her life. And she, um, she died by suicide actually. And a lot of her, you know, it's not solely that she also had addiction issues, but a lot of it related to the bullying as a child and, and things growing up. And so there was a difference with that. I mean, I would always get goofy comments made to me, you know, you get it and it would kind of, you know, I got enough fight once as a kid and stuff like that over that stuff but and still today you know there's people out there that that make racist comments to you and you know they think it's funny and you know not necessarily funny but uh 
but I, uh, but there is a wide variety within our nine children. My dad was a very Aboriginal looking person, um, you know, but I'm not so much. And, but more in our older, my yeah. older sisters look more Aboriginal than, than us, than me. How do you deal with that as a family? Like, do you rally around each other and are you very, do you come together often as a family and s- support each other, you know, I mean, not over anything, but like that being a, you know, a big thing. I just wonder if you kind of, there's a way that as a family, you can deal with that kind of thing. Uh, well, there is. And, and it was kind of interesting in our family. There's such a, lo- a large age group between my oldest sister and my youngest brother. Uh, we were almost three separate families. Um, you know, there's 20 years difference almost between my oldest sister and my youngest brother. So they, the older siblings had their, they were in a group kind of, and then there was the middle, my older brother, my older sister and myself. And then I overlapped with, you know, me, my younger sister and my younger brother. So there was kind of three different families. And um, our, our last photograph, of the whole family together was taken in 1962 and we had never gotten together again as a family. There's always some missing. So it's interesting that we weren't a real close family um, with, with everybody. Now, I mean, I, I talk with all of them, my two oldest sisters that have since passed, um, but all the rest, I mean, I, I maintain, you know, we phone and text and face FaceTime with all of them, but it's not a really close-knit family. And, and I think that's, that's another one of those ripple effects of that whole, of the whole upbringing that we had. And, um, and I was thinking about that too, like, you know, our, our parents never hugged us as kids it was uh, and and i i know what and i asked another person was that a mennonite thing or something or what what was that and and other people of that era said you know the same thing when they grew up like that like there wasn't we never had bedtime stories and that sort of thing as children um yeah our parents never hugged us stuff like that it was you know carry on with life kind of thing. So, and, and I think it was all part of that whole, the whole scenario of the times and, yeah. and all that. Did that try like, so when you become a dad, how does that impact you? Do you make up for that by your huggy dad as a result of the way that you were raised or? Um, honestly, more so now than I, than I was. And I, yeah, it affected me too that, that that way. That's one thing that I do I do look back upon and, and regret as a you know raising the kids and stuff. And uh, and certainly with the grandchildren, it's it's just a given. Like you know, <laughs> it's different. Yeah, and it took me a while. You know, it took me a while with our kids to, to open know. up. Sounds like yeah. Yeah, and that's, yeah, it did. So did you, so I guess it sounds like that you didn't ever have an opportunity to come together as a family. Um, well, maybe you did with your kids. I'm wondering about any of the sort of indigenous roots 
the celebrations, the ceremonies, that side of that culture that you've instilled in your kids? Or has that come at a later time for you? Yeah, it was a later time as well. But yeah, for our our kids, like our family is very close. Um, our, you know, our our son and daughters and, and us as parents were, were very close, not it's different than my parents and us in that regard. When there's issues, we all, you know, we get together you know, as a family and deal with the things, support each other in that. It, that that's entirely different than how I was raised. Um, you know, and I was, I was raised when I said, when those lines we crossed, you know, we'd get a licking and in a heartbeat if we did something wrong. And I always, you know, I never gave my kids lickings, you know, I had said when I was, you know, uh, one or two over the years. Yeah. Um, but I've since, you know, you don't need to do that. And I swore as a young kid that I wouldn't do that. Eh? But if I had kids, man, like it, I'll tell you, my dad could unbuckle his belt and it'd be across our backside quicker than we could react. And, uh, I, I, to this day, don't know how he was so fast. I practiced it. And I can't, I can't do that. Hang on, that's, <laughs> that's that you practice just taking your belt off, not the whipping bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I don't have that uh, drive in my head to do that. <laughs> yeah. So as, so, as a dad then, so of course kids need boundaries and, you know, it's just healthy to have, you know, some boundaries within the house. So if you're not whooping them, what's your technique as a dad? What was your approach? Well, we had talked to them and uh, certainly there was boundaries. There's no question. And, uh, and, and it's funny, uh, a lot of them, because of my position in the city as a fire chief, I knew everybody, you know, Casagar's population of 8,000 or 8,500 people. I mean, you get to know a lot of people. So when they messed up, a lot of people would tell us, uh, you know, so we knew before they got home, even if they skipped school or stuff like that. I mean, we would still, you know, you'd talk to them and they'd be, there'd still be punishment for it, you know, uh, whatever it was, grounding or, or stuff like that. And it was certainly talk to them and explain the, the right thing, um, you know, and there was, there was, but there were very, there were boundaries by and large, they, you know, they complied with those boundaries, but, but there were kids too. Yeah. <laughs> it's messed that, yeah. Up. I, I messed up lots as a kid. Yeah. yeah that's a, yeah. You have to have that a little bit of a longer rope, don't you? And accept you, you do. And things and, are going to go wrong. And, and people have to make mistakes too. And that's how you learn, you know, most of the time they learn by their own mistakes. They didn't me, need me harping at them. <laughs> they messed up <laughs> so in the household was was your one of the household one of those households where the mum would say my household was like this and lots of my friends too <laughs> you wait till your father gets home it was very much uh, the dad seemed to kind of hold the authority in the house was that kind of the scene at your place i think it was pretty equal here sometimes my wife would say that but mostly she dealt with it also um and then of course i'd hear about it and i'd be angry too when i got home but but yeah it was pretty the that part of it the discipline part is pretty pretty much both 
And was mum at home? Was she a stay-at-home mum or is mum working too? Uh, it was both. She was home when they were smaller and then she also worked. Yeah, we actually met. At, we both worked for the city of Castigar and, and that's where we met at the time. And yeah, and then then became married. So yeah, it was, uh, um, I mean, she worked casual for a while and then um, was a stay-at-home mom as well for a bit and then worked again. Yeah. So, well, four kids, I guess somebody has to be at home for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of juggling right there. Yeah, so, it is. <laughs> so it's really nice that your family has come, is really tight and has really come together in, you know, as you, with you as a parent. So I'm wondering the reality of the residential schools, which has been in the news, you know, about the missing Indigenous children, um, which is not new news, but the the reality of the unearthing of these mass burial sites across Canada at various residential schools. That's been big news. And I know in our household, it's really had an impact. And, you know, just an, it's a, just another level of awareness for some of, you know, the wrongs that have been done over the years. How has this impacted you and your tightly knit family now with the Indigenous roots that you have? Well, it, it is a big deal. There's no question about it. And, you know, it, it was known before, but I think with this confirmation, um, particularly with, as in Kamloops, the first ones to bring it out, I think it kind of cemented with the population that, yeah, this was going on, you know, um, I, I did have, you know, uh, one cousin I know that went to residential school and, um, but for our immediate family, yeah, it, uh, it has certainly, you know, it's that, I guess if you say that added layer and from our society's viewpoint, it's certainly, and, and for me with, you know, with, uh, especially the 10 days period after the Kamloops announcement, you know, there was a lot of healing circles with Aboriginal people and, and I was, uh, working with people one-on-one -on -one and, and not just Indigenous, but also non-Indigenous people who are also feeling the same things. Like they are angry. Uh, there, you know, uh, several people within the Catholic Church, you know, wanted to go for coffee and talk about it and how disappointed they are. And, and they, were, they were feeling much the same on the other end of that spectrum that the, uh, that the Aboriginal people are feeling. And so it's had impacts, um, I guess I could say on both ends of that, that, that spectrum of Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And so, yeah, it's uh, certainly an impactful thing. There's no question about it. And it's so layered, like there's so many layers that that whole issue that people, you know, uh, a lot of people don't understand all those layers of the effects and and now this is bringing up old wounds for a lot of people and that's that's what a lot of the stuff that i was working with indigenous people over you know yeah uh, i think as well it seems that um you know certainly from my experience you know being married to someone who's made tea as well and not just she has her own story, so not to talk of her story, but just what I've been picking up on from the community is that those people that now have a whole different awareness 
of where they're from and how maybe now they can see that it has had an impact on their family, which maybe before they hadn't really quite appreciated. Um, the sort, like you say, the layers, the layers, the you know, of this in the families. But yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And uh, you know, a lot of things are, and I've been that way myself. Uh, you, you look at things in an abstract way, you know, but when it actually when it actually impacts you personally, it, it's a lot different. It, it's yeah. a lot different how it affects you. Well, I found, you know, when the news came out and, um, you know, we were sort of consoling each other and I felt myself, you know, I had, I kind of had some tears. I kind of broke down for a little bit. And it, what <laughs> for me it was, was the reality of like, hang on a minute, this could have happened to us because our child is Métis. He mm -hmm. is, you know, he, you know, so for, I just couldn't, I couldn't wrap it around my head. And it was just, that's what made me that I could actually relate in that sense of like, you know, yeah, it could have happened to us. It could have happened to our family. I mean, you know, like you, like it didn't happen to you, fortunately, and you didn't get scooped up back then. And maybe that wouldn't really have happened to us, but yeah, I'm going off but track. Know you. Well, but yeah. 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 You're right. Every one of them. I could have been there. Uh, I could have been, and that's what my dad was afraid of. And yeah, and I, and I, I think those fears for him were real, and, and they were, you know, and, and those, through that time. Yeah, things weren't very stable in the '60s in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. Totally true. So, um, so I, what I'd like is, well, there's a couple of things on my mind right now is. Um, maybe this is a time to introduce the circle of indigenous nation society, because I think what I'm picking up is that you are in some ways a go-to person with it, you know, who represents the indigenous community through the circle of indigenous nation society coins, I should mm -hmm. say for short. Um, this interesting that people from the Catholic church are reaching out to you to have a coffee and check like, so you, it seems like you've really established yourself in that sense as an elder as a representative um, in your own way of the Métis nation in this area. Is that fair to say? Um, I, I, I guess, <laughs> I don't, you know, <laughs> it seems people, um, I, I guess so, I don't, you know, I, I, I do what I do and, <laughs> and people acknowledge that. And that's good. I, I feel good that I can help people in that way. I really do. I, uh, you know, and, and through the society, through points is, uh, is good because, you know, it's a well-established society here with, with uh, Aboriginal folks. And it's, it's come a long ways in 11 years. We, uh, I remember when we signed our first contract, we were freaking out. What do we do now? Like, you know, now, now here we are, uh, seven years later, you know, we've got over 20 employees where, you know, it's, it really expanded and it's, it's been good work. So where did it come from? Where was the inspiration for that? And what, maybe just sum up as well, again, for listeners that don't know, what is COINS? Like, what, what does it exist to do? Well, we started off with it. Um, there was an elders gathering held. Uh, in the Kootenays with what they termed as sleeping elders. And, and we met for four days. And then it was after that, that the idea was 
came up with them. And Chris Salican was, was a big player in that. And, and we, we met as the closest, uh, for those who don't know uh, where we are located in Castlegar, the nearest preserves at, or bands are the ones to the east an hour and a half in Preston. And then and the, the nearest one to the west is two, two and a half hours away in Ovias. So in this part of our province, there is no bands or reserves. And there's a lot of indigenous people living here, um, not necessarily native to this area, a lot of them, but they're from other parts of Canada and the country that have come here and there's hundreds. And, and we realize that and there's no group here to represent them. And, uh, you know, with things like, um, you know, the, the government agencies. So the idea came up to form a society and, and uh, that's how that came to pass. We, you know, we formed this society. There were five of us or six of us actually. And, uh, and uh, you know, we got it all signed off and we bid on a contract with Interior Health Authority for, you know, a Healing Our Spirits um, program for people with uh, mental health uh, issues and addictions. And then it just, it just blossomed from there. And, uh, you know, now we have numerous contracts with Ministry of Children and Families, you know, for Indigenous children, outreach programs, um, you know, liaison people with the IH, you know, Interior Health Authority and that sort of thing. Uh, but that's where it stemmed from is that there was no local band in this area to deal with these things. So it was, um, we saw a service that was needed and, and, and I guess it was and is, yeah, still is to this day very much so. Yeah, and I think if I remember rightly, um, my wife was telling me that there's actually about five, and you may be able to correct me, but there's around 5,000 or so um, people that locally identify as being Aboriginal. Something that's right, that yeah. Which is yeah, interesting. That's quite a number. It is. And I think, and I've heard this before in this area that there aren't Indigenous people around and they're basing it on looks. And you can't always judge a book by its cover because it's not always the most accurate representation of, you know, where they're coming from. No, you sure can't. Um, there's a lot that, I don't know, I guess there's a stereotypical look of an, of an Aboriginal person. And, uh, but no, I've, I've heard that too. Where's all the, where's all the Aboriginal people? Well, hundreds of them, thousands here. Yeah. Like, yeah, people don't see them in that way i guess yeah for yeah sure. there's a lot a lot of them um and so with all that being said around you know about coins and the way that you were you were raised um you know through the 60s scoop and such i'm interested in how did religion play a role in your upbringing um because of course with the residential schools there's controversy around you know the involvement of the catholic church of course running these schools um mm -hmm. so yeah and if i remember rightly you're a chaplain so yeah, what role did religion play in your upbringing? How has that influenced you in terms of becoming a chaplain and the way that you raise your kids too? Uh, it's interesting. We were, um, there was no church in Renata uh, of our denomination. Uh, Protestant. So we, every Sunday we had 
my parents, we did religion lessons. They were by correspondence. So we would read verses from the Bible and then we would do these questions, answer these questions and mail them away. And then they would come back, Mark, you know, a little gold star on them if we got them right. And that, and that's how we were brought up. My mom and dad both had a very strong Christian faith. Um, uh, my, my mom left the Mennonite even though as well when she married my dad, um, you know, my grandpa, my mom's dad was not happy about that. He, he actually didn't want my mom to marry dad. He's, he wasn't, and, and I don't know, I've, I've been told also because he wasn't white enough, but I, I don't know for sure. I can, I could see it, I suppose. But, but religion was very important to my parents. And, and it's interesting because we also, I also learned through my dad, the respect for the animals and, and, and the, that part of, of it. And so when I look at myself now, I have both Christian and Aboriginal spiritual beliefs and I, I can, they can work very well together. I mean, there are contradictions as well. Like, you know, where human beings uh, fit in the whole scheme of things. You know, there, there are contradictions there, but I, uh, mostly, though, I lean now toward, toward the Aboriginal, actually. Uh, but I, I still do have Christian beliefs as well. Yeah. And, and with regards to being a chaplain for the department, it's a, it's a position, too, where... Um, and it's interesting because to be a chaplain, like in the fire service, you have to be appointed by the fire chief and you have to have an ecclesiastic endorsement from the church that you're involved with. And of course, uh, you need references and all that. So I, I became a member of the associate, the fire chiefs, the fire chaplains association of BC and also the, the Federation of Fire Chaplains, which is an international chaplain, fire chaplains association. But I did that um, as I sent in letters as that through ceremony, I had been acknowledged as an elder and I'm, I'm not an ordained minister. So I'm the only Aboriginal chaplain <laughs> in, in the BC association. <laughs> I, I'm not an ordained minister, I would, and they acknowledged that. The association acknowledged, uh, which has, I was both uh, surprised by, but also impressed with, that they, yeah. the association also wants to, uh, you know, diversify. And, I, and so I'm the only Aboriginal elder within, as a fire chaplain within the BC association. Wow, that's and, amazing. Yeah. That they'd be, be so accepting. That's uh, encouraging. Yeah, it, it is. And in uh, the work of a chaplain, too, though, is that you don't, you're there for this emotional, you know, this, the spiritual support and, and support of, of the folks, the people that you work with. And you don't bring your own religious ideas into it anyway. Um, you know, I don't, you know, because we work with everybody, whether you're Christian, Muslim, you know, uh, atheist, uh, it, it doesn't matter that part. 
you you can help people spiritually and emotionally without without uh, you know knowing what their religious beliefs are, spiritual beliefs are, and and that's how the chaplains work. So even if you're you know an Anglican priest or a Catholic priest, it doesn't matter. You can still work with a a, um, a Muslim person or a or an atheist or agnostic or you know that's you're there to provide that support not not on right. a so and, and that's the difference between a minister or a pastor and a chaplain a chaplain is, is a field worker gotcha right yeah. actually yeah we were talking about that last night before talking with you to understand what a chaplain was so it's interesting to hear that it makes me wonder how did you raise your kids then like i you know over the there childhood were they exposed to the church or uh, you know at what point have you started embracing more of your indigenous roots um well, that's interesting too we i mean we always we gave them those core values uh you know some of our children are christian you know they attend church some don't um some are not believers at all. So there's that variety as well. And some are kind of on the fence. Uh, so we've kind of left it up to them yeah. to, to decide what's right for them. Did you go to church as a family when they were, when they were little? No, we didn't. Right. No, we were married in a church, uh, Christian ceremony. Uh, my wife and I have gone with our son and his family to church, though yeah you know uh, as a family that way that part yeah he's you know so what about the ceremony and such because i know coins you know there are drum circles and you guys come together uh for celebration and ceremony is there any of that that your family your immediate family do they come to those ceremonies uh they do mostly my daughters do uh, not all, but they, they've attended some ceremony and, yeah, you know, my middle daughter was uh, very much into the drumming and the, and the circles yeah, for, for a bit. Yeah. And uh, the smudging and that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. But not all of them again. It's, Up to them it's, to find their own path. Mm -hmm. So what have been the biggest challenge for you as a father with all this really interesting, you know, experiences as a child from the Mennonite community and then learning more about your indigenous roots as you've become older um, with all of that impact, you know, and experiences what, yeah, like, in a just straight up as a father, what are your biggest challenges when you look back now? I think for me, um, I, I think a lot of it stemmed back to my upbringing was for me to work some of those things out of my head uh, and you know i'm not saying my dad was wrong it was a different time you know and my mom i mean i i truly believe they raised us the best they could um wasn't easy raising nine kids no question uh, couldn't read stories to nine kids at night <laughs> you know, it'd be midnight before they got to bed <laughs> But, you know, and I, and I don't, I, I don't criticize them for that. I, I truly believe they did the best they could. And my dad never really had parents either. Uh, so he didn't, he struggled with that, how to be a parent. Um, 
I think for me, one of the biggest things was my occupation in the fire service and the amount of time that I, because for the long time, I never had a deputy chief. I was, you know, um, a standalone fire chief and you know, 40 volunteer firefighters. I was, uh, a lot of that time, I was on standby or on call and, you know, we'd have a long weekend my wife would take the kids and go somewhere. I had to stay in town and, and cover things off. And that, that had a big impact. And that's, that, that's one of the regrets of my occupation. I mean, I love the fire service and I couldn't see doing anything different. Um, but it, it eased up a bit later when I, when I was able to get a deputy chief and now they, there's two deputies in a city. And it makes it a whole lot easier for that. But by then, my kids were already, you know, growing up by the time that came to pass. So I think that was probably, um, I think those two factors were probably the biggest. Issues. Do you find now that you're a granddad, though, do you think on some level, is this a chance as well to like sort of, well, how would you put it? Um, kind of reestablish those relationship with your kids. Well, not all of them have kids, but certainly you no, know, as a granddad, you must be more involved now with that family on some level and being able therefore to spend a bit more time with, is it your son that's got the two kids? Our son, yes. Yeah. So you get yeah, and, and, more time? and that's true. Yeah, it's true. And, uh, and, and our relationship with our grandchildren is, you know, people would always say that it's different than your own kids and, and we're fine. It is, it truly is different. And um, yeah. And I think now that my wife and I are both retired, it's, you know, we're, it's different that you can more time to, to enjoy the grandkids in a different way than yeah. our kids, you know, and when you have your own kids, you're, you're working, you're struggling with work, trying to, you know, pay for all those things that life has to offer in addition where a lot of those stressors aren't there when we're older. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? Which, so, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's backwards. It is backwards. We push yeah. hard in our household for, and we're doing a pretty good job of maintaining a four day work week. So we have three day weekends. Right. It's still hard. Nice. It's still hard taking the kid to daycare those four days, you know, because it goes, well, as you know, I mean, you've done, you've done it like it goes fast and then you before yeah. think they're off to high school and then they're going to graduate. And it's just, yeah, you got to soak the time up as much as you can. Like you say, you got a good career. It's not easy, is it? Yeah, no, for sure. And, and they do grow so fast. You know, our, our youngest is, you know, in their thirties now, <laughs> like, I'm not a young guy. I'm all gray on top and thin like this. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and you go through life and you just kind of, you are where you are. And then all of a sudden, holy man. Yeah. Time to retire. And yeah. it's. Uh, so was it when you, I mean, it sounds like you're working a lot, but you know, you've got one boy and three girls. So did you find, I just, I almost was wondering, did you and the son, are you running out the back door to go fishing um, did you have a different relationship <laughs> with your son compared to the daughters just because of the interests that so, not always, but often, um, I mean, really not always at all, but often the boys will want to go fishing and, 
you know, it's not necessarily well, something yeah. the daughters want to do. Or yeah, how did that work out? Yeah, our son was really, he still is an avid outdoors. And like we'd, uh, we'd go hunting and stuff and fishing. And he, he was gone most, like on weekends, he was gone from morning till night. He had to be hiking or fishing, or, you know, hike up in the bush, come home in time to go fishing at the river before dark. <laughs> so in that way, yeah. And it, he and I used to go for, you know, long hunting trips you know, for a week. Um, I haven't done that in the last few years, which I'd like to, but, um, you know, and our, our daughters, we didn't do that kind of thing. So it, it was different that way. And our, our son is really instilling that lifestyle with our grandchildren as well. Like be in the outdoors, get the fresh air, you know, respect nature and, you know, hunting is a part of conservation also. And, you know, and, um, well, it's all sweet and, you know, the other products you get from the wildlife. And so he's instilling that also in his children. Right. So I'm interested in the grandkids. Like what kind of influence do you have as a granddad? Like, but coins is a big part of your life circle of Indigenous yeah. nation society. And I know our two and a half year old, he loves the drumming and he loves the drum circle and dancing and things. So do you get to expose the grandkids to that? Like, is there an interest in your son and his, you know, and his wife in that happening, that being a thing? Yeah, there is a certain amount because they, they don't live in the area, but um, our daughter is, our daughter-in-law is from Mexico. So they have a lot of Mexican influence as well, which I, I like to see that too, because, you know, um, so dancing and stuff. Yeah. Our grandson is, <laughs> is quite the, the mover on the dance floor. He's only six, but man, he can dance. Yeah. And uh, so that's encouraged. And I encourage that as well. Like, yeah. you know, culture is so important no matter what it is. So they, you know, and he's, uh, He's six and he speaks English and Spanish very well. He can carry on a conversation and he's in French immersion in school. So he's, he's going to be trilingual and, you know, when he's growing up. So those are pretty good opportunities that. For sure. Uh, so I, I really encourage that. And there's a lot of culture in Mexico too. And, you know, and then, then our son and, you know, he's more the, uh, he's also, so, so they're getting the, uh, that influence as well as, you know, the nature influence and the, uh, the hunting and the trapping part of it. And, you know, um, that sort of, so he's, our yeah. grandkids are getting quite a mix of culture and they're, yeah. they're going to be pretty open-minded people. Which... For sure. They have a really rich and yeah. Cultural history, don't they? Yeah. So they, you yeah. guys do have a beautiful teepee of coins where you do run some drum circles of the kit. Have the grandkids managed to be involved in one of those uh, moments? No, but I'm hoping, well, they're going to come visit us here pretty shortly. So I'm, I'm hoping they can. Um, you know, they, they just haven't visited us at the right time to right. be involved with the, with the ceremony at Coins. But yeah, uh, I'm hoping we can work that out. Yeah, it'd be a great experience at that age. Super fun. Um, mm -hmm. And so... I mean, you kind of already answered this in a way, I think, but so what are some of the mistakes and lessons learned for you as a dad? 
aside from the work, work was a factor for sure, which it is for so many dads and mums too these days. I should yeah. take that away from the mums. But um, yeah, aside from that, any other things you look back and like, oh. Yeah, I do. I mean, we all make mistakes. I think you, uh, I don't know. I think parents go through life. I think you try to do the best you think you know how you do, but I, I made mistakes that I, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I was spending more time with the kids, uh, for sure. I, 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 I regret, um, things like that. I think, um, you know, and I think getting the, thought process out of my head from the way I was raised also you know that factor I wish could have done that sooner or did do that sooner um that sort of stuff you know how do you do that by the way like is that like do you go out for a big walk in the mountains on your own and sort of reflect or is there a process I, I do that and you know what has helped me with uh being part of of the healing circles and hearing other people honestly like i you know to when i help facilitate those healing circles that's also therapy for me and and uh, at first i felt guilty about that eh? because and i spoke to another elder about that i said you know i'm leaving these circles i'm supposed to be the facilitator and some of them i'm leaving them feeling better and, he's, and he says well you're supposed to, that's supposed to be how it works. <laughs> and I said, well, I've been feeling guilty. Like I shouldn't be doing that. But so they, they've also helped actually to put things into perspective. So uh, hearing also. other, hearing other people's stories within that safe environment of sharing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think to myself, man, you know, did I do that stuff? And yeah, I did, you know, and so I got her fix those things and you know try to move forward with that too does that like did that come naturally to you being in a position where you're opening up like that in a circle was it a men's circle by the way or is this uh multi-gender i don't know how to put it but like multi-gender yeah the first ones were for a lot and then we got we did um we we got funding to do some men's men's healing circles which was different again than you know when you have mixed mixed people uh, um so I, I think i was there too when i when i saw how other men were feeling about stuff too and uh, because men don't always talk about stuff yeah <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, and i found that in the fire service with the critical incident stress management like men it, it was a process because men are tough, you know, firefighters are so tough. Nothing bugs us. Well, yeah, it does. You know, I say I'm not as tough as I used to be boy. And, uh, yeah. and, and, uh, tough ain't the way to go. <laughs> so you learned that skill through that experience in the fire service, the skill of like the counseling and the talking and active listening and those kind of things. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was back when this, critical incident stress management started to come through in the late eighties, early nineties. And, and it was a tough, it was a tough uh, process too, you know, for all service. 
there's still a ways to go, but now it's pretty much accepted. Like, yeah, they have a rough call. They're expecting uh, me to talk to them. And, you know, so it's come a long ways. And the fire service in general is that way. But, yeah, that's that's kind of where I learned that process. And Yeah, well, it's really good work that you're doing, doing that. I think you're so right. But not just in the fire service, but also in these healing circles, too. And another reason that I'm really grateful for you to come on the podcast, because just hearing other dads talk about their experiences, I think is helping in that sense of just, it's a relatable story. Somebody else in a similar position, working all the time, coming from these, you know, different experiences in their upbringing and how they relate that to their parenting. Yeah, it's so valuable. So I really appreciate you sharing today. So last question I've got for you. Similar to the last one in a way, I guess, but if you could whisper a piece of advice to yourself before you became a dad, back in those early days, what would you, what would have you told yourself? Uh, I think spend more time with your kids if you, if you can. That old adage is right that they grow so fast and they do. Um, I think, um, and it's going to be a scary road, <laughs> but walk down that path. And, and I think in the end, you do the best you can and you lay the good foundation. You'll have your kids will do OK. You know, the core values and, and, and those concrete foundations and allow them to make mistakes. That's, you know, it's an expensive way of learning, but sometimes it's, it's you got to make mistakes sometimes, you know, and you got to be able to accept that and, and move forward and not dwell on them. You know? Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And actually, that's something you've said a few times is like allowing them to make mistakes, which I think is really good, giving them that space to do that. It's a good reminder to me, too. Maybe not with safety. The helmet goes on. I'm, a, I'm like, yeah. I'm a stickler for the safety stuff um, because I worked in the outdoor industry for a long time, instructing and coaching and such and climbing. Oh, for sure. (laughs) So it's a huge thing, isn't it? But I think outside of the safety gear, like, yeah, trusting them to make mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been a micromanager um, because I, I believe people, you know, that's, know they need to do that and and learn and yeah i made my share of mistakes (laughs) i I did (laughs) and i look back on it man i feel dumb sometimes but well i made them yeah well hey we're all human aren't we i mean we're not that's right and that's move forward yeah (laughs) that's it yeah it's true though isn't it it's like you know pick yourself up keep moving forward and trusting that the process is working and that you are growing as a human yeah, everything's got a teaching in it. <laughs> yeah. Got to find it. Oh, I like that. That's a good that's a good quote. Everything's got a teaching in it. That's true, so true. Um, hey Jerry, I really appreciate you taking the time out today. Um, it's been really interesting here about your background and uh, looking forward, inevitably it will happen to seeing you in drum circle at Coins. The timing hasn't quite worked out with my work, but um, mm-hmm. we'll be there as a family uh, in no time. Well, that'd be really nice. Thanks for the invitation. I really uh, appreciate it. I enjoy it. And it's, it's a pretty cool thing you're doing, you know, and I think it's important because 
yeah, I think all the dads are kind of stumbling through life doing the best you can. And <laughs> it's so true. And I feel like I speak for myself, but we're uh, not always the best at reading those parenting books and such. No, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we just trip, yeah, up, trip sure. over ourselves a bit. Yeah. And, and, you know, and they don't apply to everybody either. We're all in our different situations and we all got different uh, influences affecting us. And you do the best you can. I, I think, you know, most dads do the best they can, honestly. Yeah. And now you've, you have the blessing of being um, a granddaddy, which is pretty fantastic, right? So that's a whole other journey. It is. Now. Yeah, it is pretty cool. We're enjoying it. <laughs> cool. All right, Jerry, I'll let you get out of here. Um, fingers crossed for no more fires as well. Let's hope that we get a bit more rain. I hope so. We sure need it for okay. sure. Cool. All right, Jerry. Well, well, we'll, I'm sure we'll see you soon. Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot. Good talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Okay, bye. And now for a check-in with my favorite psychologist and fellow dad, Todd Kettner. Hey, Todd, good to see you again, man. Good to see you too. Uh, sounds like you had a great summer and it's nice that uh, you had the boys together. Oh, yeah, it's been awesome. And uh, I got to say, super jealous of watching you on your boat sailing around, dodging the uh, forest fire smoke that we've had here in Canada. So you also have had a fantastic summer by the looks of things. So yeah, it was great. Nice yeah. to be outside. Nice to be, uh, you know, some solo time, some time just uh, uh, Tara and I and uh, some time also with our kids too. That's a perfect mix. And uh, yeah, and I'm excited to get back into the podcast here because I did take a bit of a break, as you know, over the summer, um, focusing on, you know, my little boy being here from the UK after I think it was, man, it was eight and a half months due to COVID restrictions with travel that we were separated. Wow. So yeah, so that was, that's definitely been a focus, but it's really great to be back in to the podcast and I've got some great dads lined up. And I wanted to check in. I had such an amazing conversation with um, with Jerry. Uh, really interesting. So many layers to his story. But one thing that kind of pop popped up for me was the issue of trauma, because you know intergenerational trauma. His dad, like you know, and, and for me it would be my grandfather. But so many, you know, back in the day went through the war. Um, he was subjected to racism. Um, and then also Jerry moved from his home in Renata as well, which was then flooded or part of that village was flooded. And so there were so many things going on and it made me think about trauma and how trauma may impact our lives. But like really starting with what is a traumatic event? Like, because I feel like sometimes for me as well, things that have happened in my past, and it could be just going through the courts, um, is that lots of couples have had to do. I haven't really ever really appreciated that that's, that feels like a traumatic event. I've never really put any work into thinking about it that way. Um, so I was interested to ask what kind of events would be considered traumatic events? Great, great question there, Blue. And it depends on the situation and depends on the person and depends on the interpretation, right? So <clears throat> we've done enough of these to, to know you're not always going to get a quick, straight yes or no answer from me on some of these things. But um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll start with a definition of post-traumatic stress disorder and work backwards. Okay? So post-traumatic stress disorder is, you know, defined um, by a psychologist and psychiatrist who diagnose it as uh, witnessing or experiencing um, a traumatic event with um, life or injury threatening 
um, circumstances to oneself or somebody else, okay? So, you know, we, we often think of sexual abuse trauma, physical abuse trauma, uh, motor vehicle accident trauma, um, combat trauma, uh, first responder trauma, where someone's life um, or um, physical well-being is at risk in the moment. And it doesn't have to be against us, um, but witnessing it can also. Um, and then a whole host of symptoms um, that go along with that. So just witnessing a traumatic event or being the subject of a traumatic experience, as I've just defined it, uh, doesn't necessarily mean someone has will have post-traumatic stress disorder. But if they don't have those uh, kind of qualifying criteria, it's something else, right? So it's a stressful life event. It's a, um, you know, could be an adverse childhood uh, experience. It could be um, just a really crappy day. Um, it could be a, a year of on year more of ongoing grief, right? Um, so I, I think what trauma isn't on the other end of the spectrum is for a kid who comes home and the teacher talks sharply to them, you know, appropriately, but sharply because, um, you know, they weren't getting their work done or they weren't, um, they were bugging the kid next to them in, in circle time. So I think we cheapen uh, the word and the experience of those who've experienced legitimate trauma by tossing it around in our society a lot, you know, right. oh, such a, such a traumatic day yesterday. Someone just like took my parking spot and it was clearly marked. Mm, nah, that doesn't, that doesn't count, uh, um, in, in my book. Right? right. Um, so, and then in between, we have a whole host of other experiences you're describing, you know, things with, uh, your, your guest, Jerry there, that certainly qualify and his, you know, his family, um, of origin certainly qualify. And then you're describing your experience that, you know, felt really traumatic to you going through the courts and stuff. Um, that's probably on, you know, it's up to you to decide how that feels to you and how you describe it. Um, but from a clinical perspective, that would be more like chronic ongoing stress in a real high intensity, high conflict situation. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So do we, yeah. Cause one of the reasons I've been becoming more aware of it, some of the conversations we've had here just with um, the residential school kind of history and mm -hmm. how that has impacted, um, mm -hmm. you know, on a certain level, our family, I would say, and it's, well, it's not really for me to speak to, cause that's more, um, you know, my partner and sort of her family history there. But just the fact that, you know, through her work, she's been sort of coming across a lot of people that have got, you know, I would say traumatic history, intergenerational trauma with the residential schools. And so that was, yeah, it's just been coming up a lot. And then we've talked too about being aware of the triggers um, and things that can trigger you to like have that anger that will come out, which some, or, you know, that's an easy one to go to is the anger that might be triggered by certain things that happen. And we've talked about too that you know therapies that you can, you know, like EMDR to try and like help balance that out, that kind of emotional sort of baggage that you're kind of carrying, I guess, would be one way of saying that. So yeah, yeah what is there therapy around? Like how do we, I mean, counseling is obviously one option. Um, but yeah, well, how does it come out? How does that trauma, PTSD, how does it show itself? Well, in a clinical sense, um, it's a combination of re-experiencing, which is, you know, literal flashbacks, you know, awake daytime flashbacks, you know, 
um, nighttime nightmares, waking up in cold sweats, um, panic attacks. Um, so vividly re-experiencing the traumatic event or events. Okay. So, you know, not too far off of what, you know, we sometimes see in, in movies with uh, firefighters or victims of crime or, or uh, um, combat veterans coming back from a, from a theater of war, right? Um, and then there's often the emotional uh, components of that that can be sadness, depression, anxiety, um, anger, uh, quick irritability without, you know, sort of apparent cause in the environment. So other people go, whoa, what was that? And the person themselves will go, whoa, what was that? I don't, you know, why am I so angry at, you know, what in my present is such a little thing. And at the same time, it's this uh, rawness of underlying, you know, anger and irritability that can make people short tempered. And then another component is often a, what we call de depersonalization, de derealization, where people feel like um, they're outside of their experience, kind of looking down and looking in but they're not feeling present as an actor in their own lives. So this dissociative kind of component. Um, so those are some of the things that would typify, you know, a clinical uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And then you talk about, you know, anger and irritation. Um, you know, that can be from chronic stress. That can be from injustice. That can be from, you know, so what's, what's the treatment for um, someone who's anger and has experienced, uh, you know, physical pain and degradation and verbal abuse uh, at the hands of uh, um, enforcement agencies at Ferry Creek, right? You know, um, that, what's the treatment for that? How about, you know, better government, better environmental policies and heavy handed, um, you know, top down militaristic uh, um, organizations, right? So when we see this too, um, you know, you talk about uh, Jerry's background as a firefighter, so police and fire, often there's, and, and military, right? There, there's often an inability within the organization to mitigate the traumatic experiences because of the, the, the organizational structure, right? Um, and the way things are in the culture, right? Tough firefighters don't cry, right? You know, yeah. You know, we can talk about it. They just do their job and go home. Emergency room nurses, no, it's part of the job. It doesn't affect me because I've been trained to do this. Yes, it does affect us, even if we have been trained to do this, because often we're not well trained on how to deal with the emotional outcome. Right. And it goes back to what you said. Everybody's different. So everybody's going to mm -hmm. react differently to certain situations. Mm -hmm. And some, mm -hmm. I guess some might be through exposure. They become heart battle hardened to it in a sense, but um, yeah, we're all different, aren't we? We all kind of, yeah, that's what I've noticed too by myself as well. It's just, it, just, it's going back to that self-awareness of, okay, I've got, I've got this feeling happening and it's got nothing to do with what's right in front of me. This has to do with the email or the phone conversation or the something that happened yesterday. It's not this moment. And I think that for me, that awareness is um mm. and being willing to do the work as well i think and being aware, aware of all these different you know emotional impacts that we deal with every day yeah and what you're describing about is you know being in in the present right whether it's you know uh a spiritual buddhist philosophy or whether it's meditation or whether it's you know psychological treatment or whether it's um you know forest bathing right 
where we're in the present, we go, oh, that's what that was about. It wasn't, you know, that I dropped my keys in the puddle and now I have to spend a hundred bucks for a new electronic key or is it 300 now? I don't know. It's some crazy amount. You know, that's not really trauma, but it's pretty damn irritating. Yeah. And what, but what can come out of us because of <clears throat> where we're at or because of the tenderness of something that happened, you know, uh, decades ago uh, can sometimes be pretty explosive and surprise us and those around us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks, man. Thank you so much for sharing some of those thoughts there. And um, yeah, I look forward to chatting to you again soon. All right. Nice chat with you, Blue. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please do share and subscribe and leave a rating or an even better, a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Please find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dab Without Borders. And a full list of episodes can be found at dabwithoutborders.com. Thanks for supporting the show and we'll see you next time.